Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Week in Review. I'm joined again this week by Luke Perry. Luke, how are you? I'm good. Good. Coping through this third lockdown as we all are. Oh, it's great fun. And of course, SD Wick is again. How are you, Sam? Um, Very well, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I feel as though we should give you a title now uh, after your your, uh, coming into overnight fame due to a tweet the other night. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I um, I appear to have um, changed over some real life friends for a lot more e friends. Um, I've, I've uh, yeah, I appear to have been uh, unpersoned in my uh, in, in some uh, friends I have in real life, and in response, um, Giles Fraser followed me, which is cool. That's so, good. Um, worthy trade off, I guess. A great deal. Is there is there a is there an exchange rate of real life friends to Twitter followers? Does it exchange it to followers? You need 20,000 in order to replace a, yeah, a single al- Although there's some duds. I mean, if someone has like a hashtag acronym in their, in their Twitter name, then I think that's 0. 0.5. Right. I should we'll have to do my new friends. Ca- carry on, Michael, on with the show. Absolutely. Right. So, Luke, um, you're going to start us off this week with uh, the, the biggest news of the week of course biden's inauguration and some of the executive orders which he's been implementing upon arriving in the white house so what have you um taken as being the main points of his first half week in office well um if we first look at the inauguration which took place on wednesday dc was practically under a scene of a military occupation no one there but armed guards and um, vips and being the party, being the party of celebrities, the Democrats had Lady Gaga on the podium, and Trump, being the entertainer he always was, left to the tune of YMCA and um, My Way after he stepped off Air Force One for the last time. And uh, of course, after that, Biden wasted no time reversing the Trump presidency. He intends to sign 53 executive orders in 10 days with the stroke of a pen. Law is created. He has um, rejoined the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement, which was uh, one of uh, Trump's big policy changes he made in 2017. He has repealed Trump's Muslim ban. He's uh, planned to rejoin the US with the World Health Organization, which Trump abruptly ended US membership of uh, last year. So the US is stepping back onto the internationalist world stage. And... uh, Biden being the clan he's from, being the war hawk, he has, um, he's considering, we know he will, that he, he will send troops back into the Middle East and continue all these forever wars. And construction of the US southern border wall will stop with funds directed elsewhere. Uh, executive order not to count illegal immigrants on the US census. Don't know why they would say they're illegal immigrants in the first place. And executive order to end a what the media calling the Trump family separation policy where illegal immigrant families who crossed the border were had the were, the children were separated from the parents kept in separate detention centers I mean th- this was a actually happening under Obama so he's just reversed his old boss's plan and um, is also like us in the UK taking the fight to um, coronavirus on, on the national stage he's signed an executive order to uh, executive order to um, mandate the wearing of masks in federal buildings and social distancing. And so we expect uh, more of that in the near future. Do these executive orders uh, overwrite Trump's impact on America or are there 
some things which Trump have done which uh, can't just be done in this simple way? Fair answer, but still worth asking. Yeah, well, um, Trump's main, main um, method of uh, getting policy through in these hyper-partisan times was through executive orders, and they've been quickly rescinded. His legacy, which has remained, has been the appointment of three Conservative Supreme Court justices, mm. which can, can only be removed if they're impeached or through a constitutional amendment or, God forbid, Biden packs the courts. So it's it's a quick return to the status quo for American politics. The neoliberal consensus has returned to the White House and the populists have been removed. And having their memories and having the memory of populism just were wiped out through executive order. Yeah. Sam, one of the things that's been in the news a lot the last couple of days is the uh, decision, which you'd, you'd think is quite small, but has, has been a big story, uh, to take Churchill's bust out of the Oval Office. Uh, is this a sign of uh, a weakening relationship between the US and the UK under Biden, or is it a bit of hype over nothing? Well, um, I think it, it, it goes back to what happened uh, just prior to the referendum when Obama came to the UK and um, cryptically warned us not to leave. Um, I mean, let's not be honest, let's not be. Um, I mean, but Biden is just going to be a continuation of that order of you know, that, that democratic exception order, um, and that order favours Brussels over London. Um, that's just you know how it is. Um, I think the most alarming part is uh, ultimately, I you know, moving a bust out of the Oval Office is is a symbolic gesture, and you can be whatever you want from it. Uh, the part that I find most alarming is um, the response of Boris Johnson, who. Um, who received a lot of flack when he called out Obama for doing the same thing uh, four years ago, um, five years ago. Um, this time round, he is just absolutely toothless about it. Um, he uh, he refused to call out Biden for anything, and it's just showing, you know, um, in this in this time in, in in this country, we are. It seems we are clinging to life onto this, you know, quote unquote special relationship, which. Um, can only really be abused at this point. I think it's also a sign of uh, Johnson's phoniness as well. When he had a, a, a less high station, he was quite happy to talk loudly and kick up a fuss. But now that he's the prime minister, he's perhaps having to behave a little better and his, uh, his posturing is, is a bit behind him. Yes, he, he was asked if, if, uh, if Biden was woke, which I, I, I found to be a very... Uh, asinine and quite cringeworthy question but his response was quite telling that was, you know he there's, there's there's nothing wrong with being woke and and um so long as you aren't you know against one's history which is such a political response you know mm -hmm. like the, the, the mandate johnson is elected on is more than just brexit he was elected on as a knee-jerk reaction to you know what we call wokeness and if he's not willing to you know have a spine and, and tackle that, regardless of who it's coming from, then what's the point in having a, a Tory government? Mm. Um, one thing that struck me, uh, Trump says that he will be back. You said, uh, Luke, that he steps out of the, the plane, the, the, the official presidential plane for the last time, although in, in his own mind, that's not quite the case. He'll be, he'll be back in four years. Um, I mean, it's quite ironic that having been banished from Twitter and all modern forms of getting out to the public the only way he will be able to galvanize support now is uh, a more traditional way of actually going around and talking to people how successful do you think it'll be with this i mean biden's aim 
at this point, he says, is to unite the uh, divided United States. Will he have any luck with this, or do you think that Trump is is actually going to become more and more popular over the next four years? I think Biden was elected to the White House on a on negative partisanship. People did did not want Trump, and you see that with the general unpopularity of Biden. Uh, with with uh, Trump. These uh, traditional methods are available to him because, of course, he still has a lot of money. He is able to rally support. He's able to um, have a fully functioning campaign for straight on for four years. And I think with Trump out of the White House, we'll, we'll only play to his benefit because he, he's not in charge anymore. The media don't have anyone to uh, blame for rising coronavirus death tolls, anyone to blame for the economy. It's squarely on Biden now. And... Um, I think four years down the line, if Trump is able to, he will run his own campaign. Mm. And he'll, uh, if he can't get into uh, the, back into the Republican Party, he will run third party. Is, is, there not, is there not the risk there, though, that that will just split the conservative vote and just ensure another four years of the Democrats? Yeah, I, I don't think Trump would care about that. I think he, he would be um, as opposed to the Republican establishment as he would the Democrats. Because if I mean Trump tried to remake the Republican Party in his own image, he saw off the establishment candidates in the Republican nominations, and he'd be he'd be happy to uh, not see them in power, even if the Democrats win the election. Mm. It'll be interesting to see who the Republicans try and pit now as the the main figure against Biden, mm. especially in the next election. Because I, I think you're right, the the Republicans would likely reject his return. But um, if it chooses a more establishment Republican type, it, it might suffer as a result from that among the, uh, the people that Trump has managed to galvanise into politics. Right, yes, and this, this may just speak to the, the popularity and the, the campaign savviness of, of Barack Obama, but you know, Mitt Romney and John McCain could, did, couldn't get in. Um, that sort of milquetoast GOP candidate, I just don't think it's palatable anymore. I mean, the, the American right has got a taste for that, you know, what Bannon calls, you know, national populism. And I, I don't think that that'll go away anytime soon. Whether it be Trump or not is, is, is uh, difficult to say, but someone like uh, uh, Josh Hawley or even Tucker Carlson could, you know, fill that void. And um, it isn't like here where you basically have to pass, pass through parliament to win you know, party leadership. This is purely public vote. And, um, you know, if that's where the American right is, and that's what the American right values, that kind of, you know, anti-PC, anti-globalist, anti-liberal, um, then I think the GOP is foolish to uh, turn against that. Hmm. No, obviously everyone's attention at the minute is on Biden himself as president, as I suppose as well, to a lesser extent. Harris, but what look do you make of Biden's appointments this week to some of the, the high positions in office? Well, um, it's, it's, it's what we were talking about. Trump was a reaction against this knee-jerk political correctness and Trump has, and Biden has just filled his cabinet with the exact politics that Trump, Trump voters despise, which is why I, I do not think he, he's going to unite the country. It, it, Biden has signed an executive order to um, to just remove the distinction between men and women. It's basically all about how one self-identifies. And th this right. is the um, 
culture wars that the US is now being dragged towards. And his picks reflect that. And those picks are uh, for, for a moderate candidate, very radical people. Can I just jump in and say that um, despite the fact that this administration is going to be heavily, you know, again, quote unquote, woke, I don't think these people actually are woke. This, this, is, this is just that, you know, a, a, an opinion poll has been done of the party membership and, and this is what they've been told to do. I mean, Look at you. Look at the the record of both Biden and Harris. There's there's not a, there's not a lot of you know progressivism there. It's it's they're, they're just cogs in the machine. Yeah. Well, is well, might the the appointments then that, that Luke talk about the the people pushing uh, Biden and Harris themselves into a certain agenda that they might not naturally fit themselves into, but are are sort of led into as a result. I think for in American politics, the, the parties have to have the party's just a big umbrella, and there has to be a grand alliance in between. Mm. That's why um, you, you get the Trump populists and Trump in the same party as all the establishment Republican figures who are pro free trade and pro pro immigration. And I think Biden is just like he's trying to unite the country, trying to keep his party together, because the Democrats have been through two very divisive presidential nominations. First in 2016 with um, Hillary and Bernie, Hillary being the moderate, Bernie being the progressive. And uh, in 2020, there was just a, a full field of Democrats running from across the country from all areas of office. And again, that came down to the progressives and the moderates. So they need to unite or if they, if they divide, it will not look good electorally. This, this is something that I said in my article for you, Michael, that um, Biden's voting coalition is doomed to fail. It's, it's made up of too many disparate elements. You have you know, three core elements of it, which is, you know, uh, again, woke youths, GOP turncoats and you know, corporate centrist types. Um, that, that alliance isn't built to last. It was, a, it was purely an anti-Trump coalition, not a pro-Biden coalition. And, you know, the clock's ticking down to zero. Um, so obviously Biden's first move in office was sort of a, a de-Trumpification, as it's been termed, uh, with the executive orders simply to overturn what Trump had done before him. What do we expect the agenda to turn to over the next four years, though, once this sort of quick reaction to Trump has come to pass? Well, the first step, which I think will um, be continuing for another year, is battling COVID. And that's when the... Uh, like you see here, the power of the executive will really flourish with executive orders. But then I think it will be, a, as Sam says, a breakdown of the alliance. Even in um, the US Congress and the Senate, they best pass bills very quickly because that, divi that, divi that divide will show come the midterm elections in 2022. Mm. So I, I think once COVID is tackled, Biden really needs to tackle his progressive agenda, whatever that may be. It was always short on policy in the campaign because his, his policy was just, he was not Trump. Yeah. So if the Republicans win the um, midterm election, which I think they will, they, um, Biden will not have a legislative agenda. Well, thanks. I think that's a, a good point then to move on to the next topic, Sam, which is uh, yours today. And you're, you've been reading about the, the banishing of Chaucer from Leicester University. What was this decision about? The decision to to 
replace the Canterbury Tales and Beowulf and others um, in order to decolonize the curriculum. Well, yes, I mean, this is, this is everything that's gone wrong with the academy, isn't it? It's, um, you know, the, to, use, to use the old phrase, the, the inmates running the asylum. This was a decision that was made by the students, actually, and just blindly endorsed by, by the teachers. Um, so I've got it here. The, um, so yes, the Beowulf, Canterbury Tales, um, many other great pieces of medieval literature are being uh, removed in favour of a a module uh, that covers race, ethnicity, sexuality, and diversity. Now, if if you want to add that as a, as you know as a elective module, that's fine. But if if it, if it comes at the expense of you know some of the most foundational works of English literature, then I don't see how you can go on calling yourself an English lit course if if that's what goes by the wayside. The decision was put to the student, and they they made this choice. Like, I don't know about you guys, and this may just reflect on how I, I was at university, but if I was given the choice of what to do at university, I would pick the easiest, you know, <laughs> the easiest thing possible. You know, it's difficult yeah. to to read Beowulf and and unpick it and, you know, go into you know, what it means to go into the underworld. But like it's easy to write about, you know, race and gender as long so long as your conclusion is that X is racist or X is sexist. You know, it doesn't you can write any old drivel. But to, to unpick, you know, something like the Canterbury Tales is, yeah, it's difficult. Um, mm. And, and it, it really just shows what's happening to our universities, where they're becoming obsolete in, in terms of, you know, the information that you would receive for £9,000 a year, you can get for free on Wikipedia, basically, yeah. right? Or just read The Guardian. Or, or read The Guardian or, or any other outlet, right? Owen Jones' Twitter feed. Yeah. <laughs> But what the university is, it's, it's, it's now become a name on a bit of paper that, that, that will get you a job interview. You know, and, and that's the real crisis yeah. in academia. Yeah, quite right. I mean, one point, yeah. one point quickly on this. So you said um, it was a decision led by students, but um, then sort of clarified that the, the choice was put to the students by the university, obviously, that would be. Um, and obviously, you, you made the, the point that people would go for the easiest option there. And also, I suppose, with one being about diversity, it's, it's sort of one of the, the hot words of the day. People go to it because they hear more about it, they're more aware of it before. Um, so the university would have known, I imagine, that this is what the, the reply would have been. Um, mm. uh, uh, there's an interesting piece today as well, because as you, you pointed out, um, this was mainly about... Uh, decolonizing the curriculum as they say and bringing about more diversity. Um, Laura Freeman's written a piece in the Telegraph titled Chaucer was a champion of true diversity and she talks about the different characters in the Canterbury Tales who rather than all um, being lumped into one and some of them being overlooked instead are given their chance to read their own tales and she writes of um, you know if you're in the market for a strong woman she writes and the wife of Bath is is the one you're after. So there's a, a good diversity of characters there, all given their own voice. Um, so the decision by the university, um, as, as aided by the students, is nonsensical, as well as, uh, as, um, as you say, being an assault against what the institution is there to do. Right, and, and, and it's, it's so weird that the word decolonize is being used here, considering this, these works were written centuries before the British Empire. 
Yeah, and the, and the old English fairy tales, such as Beowulf, were near enough wiped out in a period of colonisation after the Norman Conquest. Right. So the, the university, with the legitimacy of the students, would um, sort of finishing their work nearly a thousand years later. I mean, yeah, I, I don't get the decolonise the universe, the university and the education. It's it's a Trojan horse for activism. It always has been. And uh, I mean, I got a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago: "If you want to destroy people, you must first sever their roots." And that's why a medieval literature, English history, is is being sent away in favour of these studies, which are highly politicised. And as Sam says, you best have one conclusion in your essays. Yeah, it's it's um, on, I had a Georgia Gil Hardy on my podcast recently, and she she was saying that um. She 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 would often um, not be honest about her her views and her essays just to get higher marks, um, and that, and and that just shows you you know how how dangerous monocultures are, especially in something as important as a university. Yeah, well, I had I remember when I was at university, I had a uh, one of the essays I had to answer was on critical race theory, and. Well, we had to we had to talk about a news story through the eyes of a, a critical race theorist. So again, there it wasn't anything to do with uh, providing evidence for and showing reading of one's own opinion, but instead just uh, tagging this this university-approved theory onto a piece of writing, whether we agreed with it or not, which seems completely against the whole point of of, of learning and 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 um, justifying new ideas. It's just putting a rubber stamp on ones which the university wants us to approve instead. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's next then? If, if they can take away Chaucer like this, and this is, this is one university, the University of Leicester, do you think that um, given where other universities are, are heading that this could be likely elsewhere as well? Perhaps in Oxford in 20 years as they, uh, despite claiming to be the bastion of of traditional learning, seeing a ways to slip in the end. Oh yeah, I, I'm surprised this happened in in Leicester and not, not a Brussels Group University. I mean, mm. you know, like the you know unis like KCL, UCL, Oxford, and Cambridge have been have been leading the charge on this for years now. I mean, yeah. and you can well imagine that if an academic were to talk out against this, they'd soon find themselves without a job. And and and, and therein lies the issue. There's there's no. There's no mechanism for holding this stuff to account, because again, it, it's presupposed in the theory that um, any opposition to, you know, CRT and diversity is 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 presupposed on an opposition to any form of pluralism. Um, an attack on this, you know, uh, junk science is an attack on minorities, and um, yeah, and therefore any 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 dissenting voice is fair game. As, as someone who's still at university, it's just the, the culture of censorship is just ever increasing notch by notch, year after year. And when the um, when the Black Lives Matter came, that just sped it up completely. Mm. And it's, I, I cannot see universities being in a good place, not just 20 years down the line, but five years down the line. Completely unrecognisable from when our parents were at university. One of the problems I see with this as well is that, uh, Sam, you rightly said that university increasingly is um, an opportunity not to learn, but to gain a piece of paper so that you can get a job more easily afterwards. Um, 
now I can't see that changing because so many fields now to be a police officer, for example, to enter almost any profession, you have to have a degree. So people are going to carry on going to university in roughly the same levels, if not higher than they already do. They're currently at 50%. But at the same time, there's a lot of people, uh, young people as well, increasingly, despite the narrative, who disagree with um, the idea of decolonizing the curriculum of um, stripping ourselves of our cultural roots. Now, the implication then is that people still will be going to universities, will have to take these courses since sometimes they're either compulsory or um, there's not enough of a choices to, to avoid them. Um, but rather than spending time engaging in the modules, because they know they are there just as a, a show of how modern and liberal the university is, they'll spend a few months going to lectures when they have to, skimming through the reading, writing what they have to write rather than what they've actually learned and picked up on because it's a proper engaging interesting subject and then move on as if it never happened now it's just a complete really it seems a waste of time rather than delving into a subject which they might have thought they wouldn't be interested in like learning about the canterbury tales and coming out enlightened by uh, by the subject hmm. yeah i mean there you have it i mean um the university is now becoming, uh, for anyone, you know, right to enter, it's becoming just a passive experience of, you know, uh, doing what you must do to get, to, to get by. I mean, I, I had to do that. You know, I, I um, if, if you read my, my essays at uni, you'd, you'd think I was a third way Blairite. <laughs> yes. Because, because my, because my lecturers were, and, and, that that's where that's where the the the, the specter of Blair kind of hangs over us, really, because this was his this was his dream, right, to get us all into university to create a generation of you know urban progressives, um, and with the exception of you know some dissent, i.e., the three of us and, and many more like us, that's how it's gone. One last point I'd like to make about the less university debacle, and uh, we all know how countries that appear what that awoke in the west that claim to support minority rights and to fight against racism they're all um, having their uh, dirty hands elsewhere such as Leicester university it mm. is uh, just one one card in a pack of many and in 2017 it approved the opening of their Leicester international institute in a uh, dalian university in china of course uh, a, a country that is um, highly racist and uh, given that this decolonization university has also coincided with an attempt to tackle the climate crisis is ha has an international institute in a country that is the highest polluter hmm. um, the last comments that i have on, on this matter are just just the indirect consequences of what this is doing to the student this is um you know this this is again this is reinforcing that um if you stomp your feet and call for it you'll you'll get what you want and that's yeah. reinforcing a really bad mindset in you know young graduates who, you know, if you go to university with the belief that you'd never have to hear anything you don't want to hear, you can censor and block anything you want. How are you going to react when you graduate and you get turned down for your first job, or or, or any any sort of thing? This this is this is this is the whole thing with you know with the, the coddling mind as, as Jonathan Haidt calls it, is that it's it's. You know, to be to be crass, it's creating a, a generation of minded people who are unprepared for any sort of you know 
uh, upset or tragedy in life. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe as a, a rarity, we should end on a, a message of suggestion or of possible hope. This is really an opportunity for the students at Leicester University, if there's any conservative or even just slightly traditionally respectful students at the university, create a Chaucer Society or improve the English Literature Society that already exists there and create, I mean it's difficult admittedly at the time of the, the virus when no one is actually at uni, but create Zoom calls where people talk about Chaucer and discuss some of the topics which he raises. I mean that's, that's what Bornbrook was born out of, admittedly it's a group of SOCOMs who met and thought they would um, try and produce something which countered the liberal message spread through the conservative society. Um, so, so if, you know, if, if the university fails to provide you with what it, it should, then do it yourself. There you are. Um, we'll move on to the last point anyway, which is, is my story this week. Uh, admittedly, this happened at the end of last week, but I thought it'd be important still to talk about since um, few of the publications have, have taken the right line on it. And this, of course, is the purposeful misinterpretation of uh, Lord uh, Sumption's remarks on the BBC programme last week. They were talking about the impacts of lockdown and admittedly Lord Sumption was quite clumsy with his wording and conflated a number of issues um, when talking about qualities, which is quality adjusted life years, um, a, a basic term used in health economics um, in which professionals um, objectively measure how much money to spend on treatments um, based on the amount of years those who receive treatments have left to live. Um, so say if there's only a certain amount of money and um, they need to develop a drug which um, will help 90 year olds and another one to help five year olds then they will put more resources in the one for five year olds. So it's a very simple objective measure. Um, now whilst on the programme Lord Sumption talked about this and talked of some lives in light of this being quote less valuable um, and a, a cancer sufferer took this to heart and thought that he was talking specifically about her and being on a, a video chat um, and not properly hearing each other I think he thought that she was referring to his previous comments simply about age not about cancer and said that um, her life as a result was less valuable than say someone much younger. Um, now straight away the Daily Mail led on its front cover the headline something like outrage as former judge um, says that a cancer sufferer is less valuable which wasn't his point at all and one of the most annoying points about this story is that Lord Sumption had actually produced a statement um, and had talked to the lady um, who suffers from cancer and they'd sorted out the issue and he said in the statement I thought she was responding to my earlier comments about older people being protected by total lockdown um, and object extremely strongly to any suggestion I was inferring that her life was less valuable because she had cancer. Now the Mail knew this because it actually published the statement in its story yet still ran with the claim that Sumption had been outrageous and, um, and had said that people's lives because they had cancer were less valuable. Uh, a, a tale which the Times published two days after by publishing a, a silly article by Melanie Phillips which we might talk about in a moment. Um, but it seems, Luke, doesn't it, like a, if you think so, a, a continued 
attack and misinterpretation purposefully of lockdown skeptics just to try and hammer down the the pro lockdown case yes that, that was certainly the case and when i um was hearing about this just, my mind just went back to roger scruton and his encounter with the new statesman and that interview with the new statesman was um purposely misleading with the intention of um, defaming his character. And when um, Roger Scruton was removed from his government post, the uh, the interviewer even gloated on Twitter that he had removed Roger Scruton. And we're just seeing that now with lockdown skeptics. It's Again, when we go back to the talk about woke universities, you cannot challenge the dominant narrative because it's not just a case of um, they'll disagree with you. It's a case that they'll be able to take down your character. Mm. And this is very frightening for public discourse. Mm. Another case it reminded me of was the, the Starkey affair from last year, which we'll remember well. Right. Um, now, what happened with Starkey was that his words, again, were misinterpreted by many purposely. Because he used the word damn in a sentence, people took it that he was referring negatively um, on a matter of race and was hounded for this. And essentially what this boils down to is... Um, grammar Nazism almost because someone accidentally says one thing which they don't mean or um, perhaps puts a point slightly less clearly than they might otherwise have done regardless of their true intentions later revealed through statements um, and admittedly obvious in many cases in the first place those who disagree with them jump on the opportunity to just completely ignore their argument to claim they said something else and cancel them out of the discussion as a result. Yeah, the, the, the thing with the Starkey, um, let's say scandal, and in air quotes, was that, um, yeah, he spoke carelessly, but what he was saying wasn't, you know, the, the, the damn thing. He was saying, you know, it's not true because of the damn evidence, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's what he was trying to say. I mean, yeah, he's, he, he spoke carelessly and he probably should have cleared that up. But uh, it goes back to what we're saying with uh, Law Sumption, where he what he was actually saying about lockdowns and, and, and the sort of the, uh, the needless collateral damage of them was sound. But it was, you know, it was, it was a, a comment that was misinterpreted that, that took the headlines, not what he was saying about lockdown, which, I mean, I, I found to be quite agreeable. Yeah, I think the problem is that the, the idea of qualies is, is quite difficult for a lot of people to understand. It's not something we hear about. It's not part of our usual vernacular. Um, so uh, he admittedly should have chosen a different argument because of that. I mean, it, it made me laugh uh, reading Melanie Phillips' piece, almost in despair. I mean, Melanie Phillips has written some excellent books and some great uh, columns. I stand by the fact that her book, Almost Have Prizes, is not only one of the best uh, non-fiction books, but one of the best books I've ever read. It's incredible, well laid out, very well written. Um, and very powerful on, on education. And it, it harks back to some of the uh, discussions we were talking about on the, the second subject. Um, yet in this piece, she criticized Sumption for using subjective measures to qualify the value of people's lives. But the entire point he made was that quality is an objective measure, that it's not about what people have done in their lives, their achievements, either uh, past or future, those to come but simply a, a pure objective measure of age, which can't be questioned. Um, yeah, that was completely ignored. And it, you must um, take the idea that it was purposefully because Sumption had made 
it quite clear afterwards that what he was talking about was a, an objective measure of life worth. That was it. Yeah, yeah the, the fact that this happened purposefully is um, rather frightening because it, it shows that they themselves believe that their arguments do not stand up to scrutiny. Mm. And one of the, um, I've got another quote for everyone, um, you cannot debate with subversion. It's <laughs> how, how, how do you object to people when you know they're going to deliberately misinterpret you to defame your character and support their own point, which they cling to almost religiously, in spite of all the evidence. Mm. Mm. Well, this this event wasn't taken as far as, um, as say, the Starkey event. I mean, thank goodness Sumption didn't say damn was my initial reaction. Um, but it is as we've said, a pretty telling indictment of the, the level of debate over lockdown. Um, it's taken for granted, I think the problem is, that lockdowns do work. I've had a, a news flash on my phone a moment ago, uh, infection numbers decreasing as a sign that lockdowns do work, yet we know that in some areas, uh, Tier 4, Liverpool, Manchester, the infection numbers were decreasing before January 4th when the lockdown was implemented. And uh, Michael Pissaris wrote a, a very good piece on online for us yesterday, looking at some recent papers which delve into the evidence of whether or not lockdowns work. And when you compare countries which have used lockdowns and haven't and try and factor in other, other uh, factors into the matter, it's very hard to tell whether they do actually make a difference. Yet the fact that we have taken to assume that lockdowns do work means that those who try and criticise it have a very uh, difficult mire to travel through, through between, before sorry, their, their arguments are listened to. I mean, is there a way that lockdowns can clarify their points more easily? I've already said that qualities was too difficult a, a, a point to um, try and make the points on. How, Luke, could we go ahead with our arguments to make it uh, so that our points are more accepted by more people? Well, it is, again, we, we have the wave up against us here and the wave that is ready to crash down on our heads. But, but I think try to, uh, we need, because um, often we've called the media a doormat media. They only bring on lockdown supporters and thought radio has been one of the only um, ones which have brought on sceptics. And I think a question to cancelled. Yeah, but I said it was cancelled, of course. Yeah. Uh, I think both, I think, is it? There's no new talks about this, that politics has been characterised by both sides talking within their own tribe and not to each other. I think that mm. needs to happen with lockdowns, such as question time, there needs to be lockdown supporter, lockdown opponent. Both sides display their arguments in a fair manner. It's not adver as adversarial as social media would be. And I think that's how lockdown sceptics would break into the mainstream. Mm. And you'd think it'd be easier than ever because lockdown isn't a party question the only the only topic which is being debated between Labour and the Conservatives say is how soon we should implement it but you have plenty of uh, lockdown supporters and lockdown skeptics both within the Conservative Party um, maybe not parliamentary obviously uh, and the Labour Party so it'd be quite easy to to get two people who usually are on the same side to talk with each other who who at the very least respect each other's foundation of argument Yet, as you say, the, the main platforms simply aren't um, often enough allowing for such discussions to take place. Well, it's, it, it's been 
it's been almost narrativized as you know lockdown skeptics are these you know uh pseudoscience quacks who you know refer to covid as a as a, as a pandemic I mean, um i remember when when the the great barrington declaration was suppressed by google um something which, which was backed by you know uh, oxford epidemi epidemiologists it, it wasn't just this quackery um, and when it comes to, you know, getting on a, a, an equal number of lockdown skeptics and, and proponents, um, I don't particularly trust the media to act in good faith there and bring on a reasonable, articulate skeptic. Yeah. I, I almost worry. I, I remember I saw, I was pointed to a video this morning by Casey Hopkins, who uh, I'd usually try and ignore. But... Uh, she, she apparently has been raiding against lockdowns the last few weeks and some of the points she's made, I listened to a video, made a pretty sound point, fair enough, very good. Uh, but I worry, as, as you said there, that they would introduce, say, a figure like Katie Hopkins as a figurehead of the lockdown sceptical side, which I think would do more harm than good. The same goes with, um, you know, when when sceptics have been talked about on, say, the BBC, a lot of articles, you'll always see um, well, some skeptics, such as David Icke and Piers Corbyn, uh, have said this, and you go, oh, they're not the representatives of, of the quote-unquote movement, of, of which there isn't really one. Um, so it, it is hard, as you say, to get people who are both competent, respected, um, and sound in argument. Mm. Well, because, I mean, if, if, you, if you live and work in the mainstream, it's, it, it's career suicide, right? Mm. I mean, only people who are capable of rising above it, such as you know, Peter Hitchens, are able to really speak out against this stuff. You know, it does beg the question: how many, you know, uh, sort of midwits in the BBC are not in favour of this, but just can't speak up? Mm. It, it, well, I think, and it goes back okay. to the the the, uh, the the problem of having a monoculture. Yeah. I think one of the problems is that, um, and Charles Walker MP said this in, in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, most politicians and most people in the, the broadcasting and, and print media themselves live very comfortably. They'll live in nice areas with nice fields to walk in and um, their jobs of course are secure. They might have even been, uh, have benefited from this, from this time of quiet and other than not being able to go to pubs and restaurants. Um, might not have seen or certainly haven't seen as dramatic a change in their lives as people who live um, different lives to that, who don't live in nice green areas, whose jobs aren't as stable, uh, who are more cramped and have more stresses in their lives. Um, and so that might be part of the reason that uh, the, the message put across by the media is so pro-lockdown because many of the negatives just even if they're seen, certainly aren't experienced by those people there. Mm -hmm. It brings back to, um, reminded me of the Brexit debate. There's an out-of-touch liberal establishment that does not empathise, does, does have no knowledge of the lives lived by the rest of the country. And it's, how, how do you break that barrier when um, these people by default think you're uh, pseudoscience quacks? And they'll try to discredit you in any way they can, even maliciously. To be pessimistic, I don't think you can. I mean, this is you know, um, this is this is this is something being pushed by 
the, the you know the 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 levers of power um and again you know and if, if you are a sort of, if you are a you know head in the sand careerist this is your only option well in terms of other news last week so last week we we summed up by talking about um assumption um and the message that he might give in these times um there haven't been that many upbeat themes which we can discuss really at the end of this week one of the things that struck me um however talking about lockdowns is the massive stories coming in about the impact of lockdowns on mental health i mean there was one which was that um the prince's trust has been talking to um people across society and in particular people who aren't in work training or education which at this time is of course very high given that we're all locked indoors now apparently 40 percent of people in this situation feel unable this is a quote unable to cope with life now that's not simply being fed up or bored of this or unless can we move on now please unable to cope with life it's an, an extreme sentence um to read if yeah. this carries on going if you know we, we were told this morning that lockdown might extend until summer and we've already been hinted at that we're likely to be in another lockdown or at least very restrictive circumstances in december what kind of generation is this producing for for young people who are say finishing uni can't find jobs or even uh, younger people who can't go to school and socialize how how deep and long-lasting do you think this impact could be oh I mean, horrifying. I mean, the the full the full ramifications of lockdown aren't being seen yet. When the furlough scheme finally ends, I mean, that that that's when it's going to hit the fan economically. But the, the people I really despair for, I think I mentioned in the past, are kids aged you know three to six who are being socialised right now, and yeah. the the their their foundational lessons of life at the moment are being don't go near people, don't hug people cover your face, go to school, and then straight back home again. Like, um, that, that, that's where the real laugh and down is going to be. Because as I said before, you know, you, you, the three of us, you know, can, can think around it. We, we can understand that this, is, this isn't natural. And we can use our reference level of life before this to return to some normalcy at some point in the future. But again, yeah. if, you, if you're a child and this is how... You know, and you're learning about the world, and this is the way the world is. I, I, I really despair for them. And I also think that for those in their twenties, such as us, and in their teenagers going to university, and then soon into the workforce, as Sam said, that um, respiratory virus last two years, we're entering the most severe economic crisis since the Great Depression. So. I'm not sure how how long how long will that last, and, and that's probably when we'll have even more money printed, more stimulus packages, for um, a job market that that is non-existent. So despair all around. Something I've just remembered that I saw earlier this week that I think we should end on um, as a bit of a laugh. Now um, I saw this on Twitter actually, I was scrolling by and, and, and saw this quote and thought it was a joke initially. Uh, someone had framed it as a spoof, but this is a real sentence. So Chris Whitty, um, the man who urged the government to plunge the nation into its first lockdown and into its second lockdown and into its third lockdown. And of course, um, 
the de facto lockdown tiered systems in between all of this, said in a recent press conference, uh, conference and I quote, there are people who perpetually argue against lockdown, but it's worth remembering the definition of insanity, doing the same thing again and again with the same outcome. Every time you loosen up too quickly, you get an upswing. Now, what an astonishing statement. The man who keeps on urging lockdowns again and again and again because the first time they don't work tells us that we are conducting the definition of insanity. Lockdowns don't work. We're saying they don't work. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the repetition which is going on. <laughs> so, uh, there's a slight, a slight silver lining in, in, in the form of, you know, us being able to laugh at it. But, I mean, the situation is is bleak and will be bleak for quite some time now was that your silver lining no that was that was that was me uh that was me painting over the silver lining with with oh right <laughs> yeah black. we'd be so lucky there you are but anyway thanks all for listening um this is the third episode we're enjoying doing it and i hope you're enjoying listening and we'll be again next week to review the week gone by have a good weekend